This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. A big moment in any presidential term comes when the president has to nominate a new member of the Supreme Court. It doesn't always happen. Some presidents can go through their whole term never having to make that choice. But that moment has come for Joe Biden. Now, you'll remember that a couple of years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and liberals around America and indeed around the world were heartbroken because it meant her replacement on the Supreme Court would be made not by a fellow liberal, a Democratic president, but instead by Donald Trump. And that move meant he could change the ideological complexion of the court, giving the Conservatives on that bench a permanent supermajority. There had been calls for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to step down, to retire, back when Barack Obama was president, so that he could get to choose her successor. That meant that there was even more pressure on Judge Stephen Breyer not to make the same mistake. Aged 83, commentators were urging him to give up his place so that Biden could choose his successor. Up until recently, it seemed that Stephen Breyer was not to be moved. But last week, he changed his mind. Stephen G. Breyer will step down as a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court at the end of his current term. Immediately, the rumour mill cranked into action with speculation everywhere about who Joe Biden would nominate to take Stephen Breyer's seat on America's highest court. Not that Joe Biden hadn't left pretty heavy hints beforehand. Now, again, this is not going to change the ideological composition of the Supreme Court. Liberals will still be outvoted just with three of them to six of those conservatives. But it does give a chance for Joe Biden to leave a lasting mark on the court and also to please those often disenchanted liberals in his base ahead of those all important midterm elections in November. So what will Joe Biden have to do to get his choice over the line? That was the question I put to Joni Grieve, who is the senior US political reporter for The Guardian and, of course, a frequent voice heard on this podcast. She's been watching events over the past week, and I began by asking whether she was surprised when she heard word that Breyer was to step down. Not necessarily. Justice Breyer has basically faced calls to retire since the moment that Biden got into office. Uh, he is 83 years old and Democrats were obviously quite disappointed that they were not able to really have much say for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg died in the final months of Donald Trump's presidency when Republicans still controlled the Senate. Today, it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court. And they were able to very quickly confirm conservative justice Amy Coney Barrett to her seat. So Breyer has faced a lot of calls to retire and to avoid a situation like that in the future. And so while the timing of it was a bit surprising to me because I thought that it would happen more maybe towards the summer when the court was wrapping up its session, the fact that he was retiring is not surprising in and of itself. 
Yeah. And we always talk about the, you know, the liberal, it's now just a trio, just three of the nine are on the liberal wing. Within that, is there anything particular, peculiar that distinguishes Breyer? Is he a particular kind of liberal? Is it, is it, you know, is there a tiny nuanced difference between him and, you know, before then, Bader Ginsburg when she was there, but, you know, uh, judges Kagan and Sotomayor? Is, you know, how do we pin him down? A lot of people have talked about him as sort of the ultimate pragmatist on the court. He likes to really dive deep into the data behind a a specific case. And in that way, he has uh, somewhat of an ability to to maybe uh, bridge gaps with his conservative colleagues in ways that might be a little bit more difficult for some of the other liberal justices on the court. So it'll be interesting to see, depending on who Biden chooses for Breyer's replacement, whether that is something that they will try to replicate in their own work on the court. And I suppose, I mean, bridge building was so important when it was five to four, because actually you could sometimes, all you had to do was peel off one judge from the conservative camp and suddenly you were in the majority. And they did that with several judgments. And sometimes it was Judge Roberts who would come over, Chief Justice Roberts would come over, for example, on the Obamacare ruling. And so Breyer played a big role in that, I suppose, as this kind of practical, non-doctrinaire figure. And that's fascinating to wonder well, in a way, whether they even still need it, if, if given that it's six to three, maybe it's a lost cause ever to get those kind of bridge building things. Anyway, let's talk about what, just before we get on to the whole business of his successor, just one thing on this point about him moving. As you say, you the pressure was intense from the day Biden was elected, really. Was there any of that pressure directed at Judge Breyer himself from the Biden White House, as far as you know? So the White House has really stuck to its line that Supreme Court justices get to decide in their own time and in their own way when they will step down. Earlier, and you heard the president say uh, it is there's a long history of Supreme Court justices determining when uh, they may retire, if they retire and announcing that. Uh, and we're going to uh, that remains the case today. So at least Externally, the White House has not projected any kind of pressure on Breyer to step down. But that being said, I think that they are jumping at the opportunity to fill this seat because with Democrats in control of the Senate, it's it's likely going to be a pretty easy victory for Biden. And Biden has not had many easy victories in the past year. You know, obviously, he's he he has seen his approval rating drag down. So the fact that Breyer is stepping down and it gives them this opportunity to fill the seat, it is a perfectly timed opportunity for the White House, I would say. I mean, in a way, what was in my mind was this story which did emerge after the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which was that uh, Barack Obama had had uh, Judge Ginsburg come for lunch to his private dining room in, in 2013. They kept it very quiet. And apparently it was incredibly sort of awkward because he didn't want to come out with it and say, look, you really need to retire. So he didn't directly bring up the subject of retirement. And at the time, she was 80. She was the oldest member on the court. She'd twice uh, been diagnosed with cancer. But apparently what Obama did was to just mention in conversation that the midterm elections were coming. And, you know, the Democrats might lose control of the Senate. So kind of bit of a hint. But she didn't really take the hint. But I don't know whether Biden did anything like that with uh, Judge Breyer. But anyway, he didn't need to, it seems, because Judge Breyer maybe drew his own conclusions from what had happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Anyway, we are now in that place where, as you say, Biden has some an opportunity 
opportunity and you know compared to all the problems he has he probably relishes this one to make an impact on the court with who he nominates now he has pledged already to nominate a black woman to the supreme court just tell us more about that pledge when he made it and why he made it Right. So during the 2020 campaign, Biden promised that if he had the opportunity to fill a seat on the Supreme Court, the first chance that he got to do so, he would select a black woman for that seat. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. And if a black woman is indeed nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court, that will actually be a first for the U.S. No black woman has ever sat on the Supreme Court in the entire history of the U.S. And when Biden made the pledge, he described it as a long overdue accomplishment for the country. So I think he really views this as something that should have happened long ago, and he is getting the opportunity to follow through on it. And if that strikes a familiar chord with listeners, it's partly because Joe Biden made a similar pledge when he was still a candidate saying that he would pick a woman as his running mate. Obviously, it's a different kind of promise in this case, but it's interesting he didn't feel he'd sort of ticked the history-making box with his choice of vice president. He still felt the need to do this for the Supreme Court. Right. And I think that that points to just how many firsts the U.S. has still not accomplished. You know, in the entire history of the Supreme Court, there have been 115 justices and 108 of them have been white men. And that really just underscores the fact that there are still so many powerful positions in our country that have been consistently uh, held by white men. And in the case of Kamala Harris, have only ever been held by men because obviously she is the first woman. So I think the fact that he is still able to uh, regularly help to break these barriers in his presidency points to the fact of how much is still not accomplished on that front. So he's made this pledge that whoever he nominates, it's going to be a black woman. Obviously, you know, people in his own side of politics have welcomed that and said it's long overdue. But how about on the other side of the aisle, Joni? Yes. So on the other side of the aisle, there have been some interesting comments about Biden's pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. While adding someone who is the beneficiary of uh, of this sort of quote, uh, the, the majority of the court may be uh, saying uh, writ large, it's unconstitutional. We'll see how. The Republican Senator Roger Wicker attracted a lot of criticism over the weekend because he said that whoever Biden nominated would be a beneficiary of affirmative action. And that prompted a lot of outcry from those who pointed out that there are any number of qualified black women who could be appointed to the Supreme Court. And uh, you've seen other comments similar to that from uh, on the right, this idea that Biden uh, should not be should not have made the pledge and that he should be considering um, all potential candidates, et cetera. And it is noteworthy that uh, other presidents, including two Republican presidents, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, have made similar pledges before. Re- Reagan and Trump said that they would uh, choose a woman for one of their Supreme Court seats. So this sort of pledge is not unprecedented at all, but it is uh, kicking up a lot of criticism on the right. I mean, in the light of the figure you told us before, that of the 115 people who have been appointed to the court in its 232 years of existence, only seven have not been white men. In the light of that fact, the idea that I think it was Ted Cruz said this was proof that the president didn't care about 94% of Americans, 
i.e. everyone who is not a black woman. You tell me, I mean, will this... I'm just thinking with the Trump base and the Fox News audience, maybe this idea that, you know, Joe Biden is being discriminatory towards the 94% of Americans who are not black women. You know, is that going to find an audience? Maybe it will. It's very possible. I also feel that given how divided uh, the country is politically right now, I do think that the Ted Cruz's in Washington and his uh, and his supporters, I think that they would have found something to criticize about Biden's eventual nominee, no matter what. And the fact that that person is not known yet, really all they have to criticize so far is the pledge. I think that this is more a reflection of just how divided like our country is politically and that basically no matter what, that Republicans were going to find a way to criticize the person, even though we don't know who she is yet. Well, let's talk about that then, of who it might be. The, the papers inevitably are, are picking out runners and riders from the very deep bench, uh, as it were, of black women judges. There's a whole group of them who've been covered in the commentary, people assessing their chances. But I think there's one name that keeps coming up more than any other uh, and who's in effect the front runner. Who is that? And that is Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She right now sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And that court has kind of been considered a potential staging area for a future Supreme Court justices for a while now. So when she was confirmed to that court less than a year ago and her nomination actually attracted some bipartisan support, it really did attract a lot of attention. And there was some kind of whisperings that maybe if Biden did get the opportunity to fill a Supreme Court seat and got an opportunity to follow through on his pledge to select a black woman, that Judge Jackson may be at the forefront of his mind. And her resume, I mean, it is pretty stunning. I mean, I know that she was an assistant federal public defender, a commissioner on the US Sentencing Commission, in other words, essentially drawing up the rules for other judges on how long they could sentence people, particularly for drugs-related crimes. She sat not on one but two of the top-level federal courts. I mean, nobody's going to be able to argue, surely, that she is not qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. Right. And another interesting part of her resume that sticks out to me is that before she was sat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, she served as a U.S. district judge in D.C. And in that role, she actually oversaw the case involving Donald Trump's former White House counsel, Don McGahn. McGahn received a subpoena from the House Judiciary Committee to testify about the Russia investigation. And he and the Trump administration fought that subpoena. And uh, that became a very drawn out case. And uh, Judge Jackson was actually the ruling judge in that decision. I mean, she's got actually a very kind of news relevant CV. I noticed that she was also the judge in the so-called Pizzagate case. You'll remember this is the guy who had been lapping up the wild conspiracy theories and broke into, I think, the Comet Pizza Restaurant in Washington, D.C., believing that it housed a child sex ring ultimately headed up by Hillary Clinton. It was just one of the craziest conspiracy theories. But this guy thought it was true, Edgar Madison Welch, and he burst in there with a an assault rifle and he was sentenced to 48 months in jail back in 2017. And the judge on the bench was Judge uh, Jackson. She said the extent of recklessness in this case is breathtaking. I've never seen anything like the conduct we see here today. So she, if, if we think about the sort of Trump era politics, she's been actually there on the bench making some of these crucial decisions. But still, again, I mean, the people have heard on our podcast before of how razor thin 
the Democrats' majority in the Senate is. It's just 50-50 with the vice president having the casting vote. We've also talked a lot on this podcast about how wily, some might even say ingenious, Republicans can often be for delaying and frustrating the will of a Democratic administration. Put those two things together. Is it possible that, and I, you know, I, I know it looks as if it should be impossible, but is it possible that Biden won't get his nomination and there will be more games uh, and gamesmanship from the Republicans to somehow delay this and get it to the other side of those midterm elections, potential Democratic loss in the Senate. Could Biden somehow fail to make this nomination? So theoretically, Democrats should have a pretty easy path to getting this person confirmed, even though they have the narrowest of margins in the U.S. Senate. It still seems like the Biden's eventual nominee will probably attract the support of all 50 Democratic senators, even some of the Democratic senators who have been sticking points in Biden's legislative agenda, like Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. They have generally um, deferred to the president when it comes to judicial nominations. So theoretically, the person should be able to get confirmed. That being said, Democrats did get an unexpected potential wrinkle in their plans this week. Democratic Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico actually suffered a stroke last week and had to undergo surgery. And while he's thankfully expected to make a full recovery, as of now, it seems unclear as to when he'll actually be able to get back to D.C., which means that for the time being, Democrats have 49 voting members in the Senate. So that could potentially affect the timing of a Supreme Court confirmation, depending on whether or not the nominee could attract any Republican support. So that is something that we do have to keep our eyes on. There are a few Republicans around who people think might vote uh, the president's way, at least on this. And uh, it's been noticed that, for example, the person we were talking about as the front runner, Judge Jackson, uh, when she was uh, had to be confirmed for her appointment to the D.C. circuit, Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, they did vote uh, to put her in place. And that therefore would make it hard for them to suddenly decide that she's not qualified because they are on the record saying she is. But no, things can always go wrong. And the fact is, all of this is all well and good. But still, as we've said at the top, the liberal bloc remains just three out of nine. Do you sense among American liberals, among Democrats, any sense of kind of regret that over the years, what was a massive priority for Republican activists, voters, organisers, which was getting judges appointed to all the courts, but particularly the Supreme Court, that it was not a, a, an equal priority among liberals and Democrats. You did not hear it nearly as much, for example, on the pro-Hillary Clinton side in 2016, as much as you heard it on the Donald Trump side, which is, for whatever misgivings I have about this individual, I'm going to put them there in the White House so they can put judges in the Supreme on the Supreme Court. I used to hear that a lot from Republicans, and I didn't really hear it so much from Democrats. Do you sense a kind of almost, you know, historical regret among Democrats? We just got this wrong over 30, 40 years. And look at us now, even with this nomination, a black woman on the court, it's still a deficit for liberals against conservatives. 
Yes, it does seem like Democrats are trying to sort of make up for lost ground when it comes to um, getting judicial nominees confirmed and also sort of that sense of raising public awareness about the important role that courts play in U.S. democracy. You now see more progressive groups. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind is Demand Justice that are really focused on the fight to confirm liberal judicial nominees. And on top of that, the Biden administration has actually been going at a record pace to fill uh, judicial uh, openings as well. And so you really do get the sense of, you know, Democrats are aware that Republicans have an advantage both on the Supreme Court, but also arguably with their supporters and getting their supporters to understand the importance of the courts. And now they are trying to make up for that by confirming lower court judges at a record rate and trying to bring more public awareness to the importance of the courts. Is the Biden White House looking at any other imminent openings or vacancies on this court? And to put it more crudely, is anyone else on this court old or frail who might not be able to see out the rest of this presidential term? So uh, Stephen Breyer is, uh, by about a decade, the oldest member of the court. After Breyer, the next oldest justice uh, sitting on the court is Clarence Thomas, and he is 73 compared to Breyer's 83. And of course, Thomas is a conservative justice. So it's probably unlikely that he would want Biden to choose his successor. So I would say for the time being, there probably aren't any retirements going that are going to happen in the near future. But as the past uh, six years or so have taught us, there can be uh, changes can happen very quickly and in unexpected ways. Yeah, no, it is a thriller plot. If you're a John Grisham reader and you've read the Pelican Brief, you'll know that the physical well-being of Supreme Court judges is a supremely political concern and people are always interested in it. It is, by the way, why Supreme Court judges are getting younger and younger. We always ask, as you know better than anybody else, Joni, sometimes sitting in this chair, we always ask a what else question on the podcast. Last week, we were talking about the Ukraine crisis, and there seemed to be a consensus that whatever else was going to happen, Joe Biden was not in any kind of mood to send troops to the region. But in recent days, he has reversed that assumption and has indeed ordered troops to be moved right there. Can you tell us what changed his mind? This force is trained and equipped for a variety of missions to deter aggression and to reassure and to defend our allies. The White House has been saying for a couple weeks now that a Russian invasion basically could happen at any time. And they have warned that that Vladimir Putin has the resources to uh, launch an invasion. But at the same time, like when there are certain signs of a potential imminent invasion, it seemed like the Pentagon was kind of saying, oh, don't necessarily read into that. You know, it doesn't necessarily on its own point to an imminent invasion. And yet the next day, of course, the White House said that it was going to be uh, sending troops to the region. It seems like there's some mixed messaging coming from the White House to make sure that everyone is on heightened alert about the threat on Ukraine's borders, but also kind of trying to keep people calm. But the fact that they are sending troops now seems to point to they are very aware this is a very real threat and they are on full alert. Joni Grieve, as always, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And that is all from us for this week. Before I go, I wanted to let you know that this Saturday, The Guardian is launching a brand new podcast. 
to help you put the trials of the week behind you. It's called Weekend, and the podcast will give you the chance to catch up on some of the best Guardian and Observer pieces that you might have missed, read out by a range of talented narrators. Listen to celebrity interviews, lifestyle features, and opinions from our most popular columnists. So do make sure to subscribe to Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. And I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please take care of yourself and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. 